two men were walking to the village Emmaus. They were deep in conversation. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were unable to recognize who he was. Tell me, friends, what are you discussing? The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet. He worked miracles and spoke with such power and authority. We had our hopes up that he was the Messiah who was foretold, the one about to deliver Israel. But he's been arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. It all seems hopeless now. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer, and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. I will establish the throne of David's line forever. His house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Open-eyed, wide-eyed, the two men recognized Jesus. He was the one who was foretold. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. I'm very glad to have you here today. It's good to see so many faces here in the West Auditorium. I've just come from the East Auditorium, and it's great to see all of you in there. Those of you who are joining us online, what a cool thing that our congregation gathers in so many different settings and in so many different ways. If you're joining us in Lovington also, we're very glad you're with us. And uh, uh, let's spend some time together looking at Scripture together today. If you'll take a Bible, or either on your smartphone, or maybe you brought one with you. Matthew chapter 21 is where we're going to look in just a few moments, the beginning of the New Testament, and uh, we'll see that in a bit, a bit. Before we get to that, though, oh, by the way, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. I'm supposed to tell you that, and I forgot to tell you. And uh, one of the things that we would normally do this weekend is that the little kids you know, seven and under or something like that, would come in waving palm branches, but with COVID and everything, that just didn't seem like a wise idea. So we managed to capture a few of them on video telling us what they remember and what they recall and know of the Palm Sunday story. Would you take a look at this, please? A donkey. A donkey. 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 A donkey. A donkey. A donkey. Um, a lot, two dozen people, I guess. Um, well, after Jesus rode on the donkey, 
um, they put palm branches, palm branches on the um, ground to um, worship Jesus. Put um, palms down and stuff. Palm branches. Yeah, palm branches. And um, I'm pretty sure they put like down towels. They like their coats. Yeah. And people are waving around palm trees. A stick that's on fire, grass, or maybe like bushes. The people were waving palm branches and they were saying, Hosanna. 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 Save us. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, come on, don't patty cake. Let's thank them. <laughs> the ones I like where the kids, the, the, in every shot, the one kid or the little girl and the little boy don't say nothing the whole way through. <laughs> Just look around. I love it. I love it very much. Well, um, Speaking of kids, I want you to see this. This is my Band-Aid for the day. Uh, it's, it's blue and orange, and um, it, it's what my grandkids usually want when there's been some debilitating injury at the, at the house that is just unbelievably painful and warrants a Paw Patrol Band-Aid, and a Paw Patrol Band-Aid seems to dry up tears very quickly. As a matter of fact, if there's a box out of Paw Patrol Band-Aids, Somebody will have an injury just so they can wear one, it would seem to me. I need a Paw Patrol Band-Aid. So that's, that's one. This other one, though, is on my finger that's a little bit more camouflaged against my skin. And I've been known to wear these in worship on some regularity, with some regularity because this is how it often goes. Saturday in the morning, you know, or Saturday afternoon, I'm usually here in the building by about 2 o'clock to prepare for Saturday night worship. But... Saturday morning, like you, I'm in the garage or out in the garden, particularly in springtime, and you cut yourself, you do something or other, and so I, you never really want to draw attention to it, so I would like, like okay, I have, to have a wear, I have to wear a Band-Aid while preaching. Can I find one that sort of fades back into the background so that you just don't want people asking, well, what'd you do this time? So, so I've been known to wear these, and what's really cool is in recent years, Band-Aid brand has come out with Band-Aid, Band-Aids now that... Uh, come in a variety of colors because the human race's skin comes in a variety of different colors. And I think it's really cool that now we've sort of grown up in this. Too bad it took us this long that we could say, okay, if you need to camouflage a Band-Aid, you can come in a variety of different colors. And so now you can get these Band-Aids to match the pigment of your skin, even if you've got blue skin. That's right. There are now blue Band-Aids as well. Industrial places use them a lot um, because you go, well, who needs blue Band-Aid? I mean, how many people have blue skin? Well, you are aware maybe that there's a group of, um, I don't say a tribe, but a gathering of people in Kentucky who have blue skin. Are you familiar with that? This, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. There really are some blue skin people down in Kentucky. They have blue hues in their skin. But it's not for those people. Here's why it's blue. Because um, you know that if you wear a Band-Aid and you bend it a bunch, eventually it's going to fall off more quickly probably than what you need to put a second one on. And, and you don't want to be doing this in a food processing factory 
and lose a Band-Aid, right? Because then it ends up in Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and that's just not nice at all, right? So they have these bright blue Band-Aids for the food processing industry so that as that food is being made, somebody say, well, that blue thing shouldn't be there. What's that blue thing? Because they want to be certain they catch it before a consumer catches it, right? Because then it's really ugly. You bite your ice cream and go, ugh. Some of you are gagging just at the thought of it right now, right? What's also interesting is that while the blue Band-Aids work in that, in that way, what if it gets in the packaging and it's then put in a freezer or perhaps it's put on a semi-truck to go somewhere, like a breakfast cereal box? I mean, once it's sealed, you don't know what's in there, right, until the consumer opens it. Well, <clears throat> apparently in the food packaging industry, there's great concern about that, and not only for Band-Aids, but also for stuff that shouldn't be there, but for like metal screws that might fall out of machinery or for blade tips that might get chopped and they might break off. And so before food processing, um, food packaging is shipped, they go, the boxes go through highly sensitive metal detectors. And in the back side, on the back side of each of those blue Band-Aids, there's a, a thin strip of metal that can be, t be detected by these food, by these metal detectors so that somebody eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream doesn't go, ah, and come across somebody else's Band-Aid from six months ago. So nonetheless, here's the idea. Some of you are going, Wayne, I really would like to focus on Palm Sunday. <laughs> What's this got to do with um, today's message? Well, I promise you, I promise you, with my Band-Aids, we're going to get to one major point of today's message, and it's going to have to do with blue Band-Aids, I promise you. In the meanwhile, though, till we get there, remind you where, you where we are in this sermon series. We're reviewing places in Scripture where Jesus' story is foretold. In other words, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout the Old Testament, in the, in the days prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, there were a lot of prophecies that were given hundreds of years before he came along saying, hey, this, this Messiah is going to come. And then in the New Testament, we discover the places where he came. And we're going to look at one of those today to see where does something found and, and written about hundreds of years before it happened, and how did Jesus fulfill that? So if you'll take your Bible, please, and read in Matthew chapter 21, we'll take a look at a familiar, what is usually preached, a passage of Scripture that's usually preached this weekend around the world. As they, that would be Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, okay, so we're about to go to Jerusalem, and this is what I want you to do. Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says, why are you stealing? Why are you taking the donkey? What, what, what's with that? Say to them that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet 500 plus years before this event. The prophet Zechariah had said, Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's the prophecy that is more than 500 years old. Jesus fulfills the prophecy. So what happens? The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the, on the road, just like what the kids were talking about. The crowds went ahead of them, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, 
Like little Joel said, that means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and the whole city was stirred. And they're like, who is this guy? Where does he come from, and what's going on? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And I suspect you're wondering, okay, what's going on here? What's the point of the scripture? Why the parade? Why the chanting and singing Hosanna? Why, why are they saying, save us? And particularly if this jubilant crowd within a few days is going to turn the mood completely 180 degrees and go from welcoming him to actually wanting him to be executed. What's it got to do with blue band-aids? And what's it got to do with our foretold series? Well, understand that. Let's go back in history 25, 2600 years from today. Back to about 586, 550 B.C., okay? The people of Judah, that's the, the area around Jerusalem, what was left of the Israelite nation, they were taken um, as slaves by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, that slavery had, been, had lasted for almost 70 years when the Scripture was read. And when, they took, when the Babylonians came in and took over Jerusalem and Judea, uh, and Judah, pardon me, um, Basically, they, they looked across the population, and they took all the artisans, all the political leaders, all the religious leaders, anyone who was educated, anyone who they could say, hey, we can use this person back in Babylon. And so they, they were literally force-marched to Babylon, and they were there for a number of generations. The people who were left behind in Judah are demoralized and anxious, and their leaders are gone, members of their family are gone, each family is impacted horribly. And yet, in the middle of that, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies this. We read this, that the whole country will become a desolate wasteland and will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, what if you're 65 years into that? What, what if you start counting in 586 B.C. and you go, man, when is this going to end? Well, you go, well, we've been told it's going to last 70 years. And so as you come to the end of 70 years, you begin to anticipate, hey, the family's going to come home. They're going to come back to Jerusalem. They're going to come back to Judah. But what happens to a family in 70 years, particularly when lifespan in those days was less than 40 years for the most part? What happens to your family during that period of time? I mean, go back 70 years from today. 2021 minus 70 is 1951. In 1951, were your grandparents even married? They may have been teenagers, mightn't they? Were your parents married? Maybe they were teenagers. The adults who were the artisans and the leaders of our nation, say, 40 years, 70 years ago, how old were they at that time? I mean, to rise to prominence in our community in Decatur or in the nation, aren't they about 40 years old at that point, 1951? And you add 70 years to that, that would make them 110. They're all dead by now, right? No one lives to be 110. So you go back 70 years and your family has changed in those 70 years. Do you even know the names of all your family members from 1951? Probably not, depending how 
far back, you know, were you alive in the 50s or were you born in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or you've been born just 15 years ago. 1951 is ancient history, right? It was the same for the people of Judah. They'd lived in bondage for so long that with this short life expectancy, they're going, we don't even know who's coming back. We don't even know what the future looks like. And they're wondering, well, I've got these family, these, these you know, long-distant cousins of generations past who were marched away. Their parents or grandparents were marched away to, into slavery. They're all dead. And now these children or grandchildren or great-grandkids who were born in captivity are going to come back, and they're going to come back to where I live. And how's that going to go? It's going to be, well, maybe it's going to be really, really good, and there's this sense of new hope and that our national nightmare will soon be over. In the midst of that, toward the end of the 70 years, a prophet begins to speak to the nation, outlining the coming peace. And Zechariah says, this is what it's going to be like. This is toward the very end of the 70 years. Rejoice greatly. He has a word from God. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, this one who's going to save you, comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots. I'll take away the war horses from Jerusalem. Remember, the Babylonians are ruling Judah. And this new guy that's going to come in, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be gone. Whatever war horses there are, they're going to be gone. The battle bow will be broken. This new king will proclaim peace, not just to Judah, but to all the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to free your prisoners. And it's a messianic prophecy. The people, as they're coming to the end of those 70 years, are expecting a new day, a coming king who will bring peace, a Messiah. And they want to know, how will we know that this guy's arrived? How will we recognize him? Well, Zechariah says, he's going to come into Jerusalem riding a donkey. Not a horse, but a donkey. It's what we read in Matthew just a few moments ago, where Jesus comes riding on a donkey down the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, and he comes through the city gates riding a donkey. And as he arrives, we read it, well, he's coming down in on a donkey. And we don't really understand the significance of it because we're not from that era. But for the people who were alive as Jesus showed up, they understood a lot of things of what was being said by the way in which he came down the Mount of Olives riding a donkey. See, in the ancient world, conquering kings proclaimed their victory over a particular city by entering, usually on a horse of war. Horses, if a, if a king came riding a horse, it symbolized that the king had conquered that city. Donkeys were not symbols of war. But riding a donkey, a king riding a donkey, indicated something else. While a horse meant warfare, a donkey meant peace. Jesus says, as by riding a donkey, I'm coming in peace. And you may have heard that before. But there's something else that riding a donkey symbolized in the ancient world as kings would enter a city. Leading rabbis commented at this period of time when Jesus was alive and in the years thereafter. They have some comments about horses and donkeys and kings entering a city. And their understandings are found in an ancient document called the Talmud. And their understanding of the horses versus donkey was not only about war and peace, horses, war, donkey, peace. Not only that, 
but they also speak of their understanding of what's, what the person who is riding that donkey or that horse are saying as they enter into the city by what they, what they ride. See, someone riding a horse, the ancient rabbis say, someone riding a horse into a city indicated that the conquering king felt that the, the city citizens were worthy of honor even if the, king, even if the city pardon me, had been conquered. But if someone came riding in a donkey, riding in the city and they're riding a donkey, you know what they're saying? The, that conquering king, if you will, is saying, I'm coming, but you're not worthy of me. So as Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, the Talmud would indicate that Jesus came to the citizens of Jerusalem saying, you're unworthy of me in some fashion. And in fact, that's the case, right? I mean, like us, as we read in the New Testament, I'm not pointing fingers at them, but like me, they were sinners. Jesus comes riding into the city saying, you are sinners. He comes riding in a humble state, coming in peace, to an unworthy people, ready to, to die and to redeem them. And then by an act of divine grace, people who accept Jesus' work on the cross move from their own unworthiness to a position of Jesus' worthiness being applied to their very souls. And that's why Jesus came on a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied in the waning days of the Babylonian period, the captivity. And by the way, you should remember, I should remember, that this is going to happen again. This same scene is going to be played out again at some point in the future. You're going, what? Palm Sunday again? Not exactly, but something very similar. Let me explain it this way. I want you to take a look at what I've called a map of the city of Jerusalem. I had um, Crystal Kirkman, our, um, who does all of our graphics for us, put this together for us. Um, because I wanted, it to be, I wanted it to be very rough so you could see exactly how this looks. So if you go to the city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, it's basically a mile square, a mile by a mile by a mile by a mile. And it's divided into four quarters, and the Temple Mount is on the eastern side of the city. Right outside that Temple Mount, where the presence of God was located. Scripture says that the presence of God was located there in the Temple. When Jesus was alive, the Temple was still built, so the presence of God is right there. The best way to get to the Temple Mount is through something called the Eastern Gate. Immediately to the east of that is the Mount of Olives. Now, it's a very short distance from the Mount of Olives. Um, if you will, you could start at the top of the hill, which is, we call it the Mount of Olives, but it's basically a, a tall hill. And you could walk down the Mount of Olives into the Eastern Gate, if you could get through it, within, within half an hour at the most. It, it's, it's probably a mile and a half, maybe, from the top down through the Kedron Valley into the Eastern Gate. Now, the old city of Jerusalem had eight gates. They are still, they're still there. Seven of them are open to traffic today. So when I say traffic, small cars, lots of foot traffic. Some of them are very difficult to... to for, they're, they're, you have to drive in and back up and do all kinds of three-point turns to get a vehicle in there. But you could go through seven of the eight gates with a vehicle, or you can walk through them quite easily except there's one gate that is closed, the Eastern Gate. By the way, you know what the Eastern Gate, some people call it the Golden Gate, but it's also called the Gate of Mercy. And I want you to see here in this picture, it's the one gate that is blocked off. This is the gate that Jesus used 
closest to the Temple Mount, the place where God's presence has resided. And as he comes down the hill of the, the Mount of Olives through the Kedron Valley, this 20-minute walk on the back of a donkey, if you will, he goes through the Eastern Gate. The people are waving their palm branches, and he goes into the Temple Mount. But the gate is now closed. It was open in Jesus' day, but it's now closed. There have been periods of history where it's been open and closed. The most recent closure was in 1541, almost 500 years ago. That's when the leader of the Islamic world, Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, he had it sealed. And so in that photo that you see there, those bricks that are closing that gate were uh, the bricks that were put there in 1541. Why did he close the gate? Well, that's because in Jewish tradition, this is the gate in the days ahead through which the conquering Messiah, not the Messiah on a donkey, but the Messiah on a king, the Jewish tradition is that that's where the conquering king will enter Jerusalem. Remember, Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down, and there's a whole new city. And the sultan, back in 1541, aware of the Jewish expectations that a Messiah was going to come, was going to come through that gate, he said, let's block off the gate so nobody can get through it, and that way there can be no Messiah. He had it closed, and he created another barrier to the city for any Jewish Messiah, namely, he, the Ottomans built a cemetery in front of the gate to, present, to prevent a Messiah from coming through even up to the gate because the belief is based, was based on, that understanding was based on this understanding that the Messiah is going to be a Jewish priest. And priests, as a rule, are not allowed to have, come in contact with anything that's dead if they're going to go into the presence of God. So if the Temple Mount is there, the priest is going to experience the presence of God. It can't be unclean, so a priest can't walk through a cemetery and go into the presence of God because then the priest is unclean. So the cemetery prevents any Messiah from even coming up to the gate, if you will. You follow me on all that? In other words, from the perspective of the Islamic world, the cemetery and the closed gate deny access to any incoming Messiah. But although the gate was closed in 1541, there's something really cool about Scripture in this matter, that that is not a surprise. 500 years ago, the gate is closed. But can I tell you, 2,000 years before that, 2,500 years before today, Scripture prophesied that the gate would be closed. Ezekiel says, I saw the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. Why did... Why, why was it shut? Well, the Lord said to me, the gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because why? The Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. So here you have Ezekiel, in this case, two, uh, 500, 600 years before Jesus comes and walks and rides through the gate, and 2,500 years before us, 2,000 years before the gate is closed, you have Ezekiel saying, at some point in the future, the God of Israel is going to go through that gate. And once that happens, it's going to be shut off, if you will, until the God of Israel comes through it a second time. 500 years before Jesus went through the gate. The scriptures, in other words, point out that Jesus was going to come to the city that way. and He enters into the city making two statements. I come in peace. I'm going to come bring peace. And secondly, you are unworthy. And then through his death on the cross, his worthiness is now placed on all his followers, and personal peace is now attainable. And think about the next time when he comes. Scripture states that Jesus is coming again. 
We firmly believe that here in this church. And Scripture also says that his second coming is going to look like this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was what? Not a donkey this time, but a horse. What does a horse symbolize? Conquering and you're worthy. So there before me is a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is who? The Word of God, Jesus Christ. The armies of heaven were following him. And what are they doing? They're riding on white horses, all dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So notice the horses. Notice the blood of sanctification and redemption. Notice the horses are saying, you're worthy. The horses are saying, there's victory. This is the second picture of Jesus' arrival on earth at some point in the future. He came to Jerusalem to die on a, on a donkey in peace, saying, I'm not going to be at war with you. He came to Jerusalem saying, you're not worthy. But now, notice the horses. Notice the victory. Victory over sin and victory over death. And notice worthiness. People are made worthy through Jesus' death on the cross. And guess where all this is supposed to take place? Where is it supposed to take place? Well, Zechariah. We read from Zechariah 9 a moment ago. A moment ago. Zechariah chapter 14 says that Jesus is going to come again. And you know where he's going to show up? On the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives. And the tradition is that he's going to come down the Mount of Olives and the last judgment is going to be right there at the eastern gate, which is called what? The gate of mercy. Why would he do it in front of the gate? Because in the ancient world, it was at the city gates that judgments were made. That's where the courthouses were. We have courthouses that are in the middle of the city. In the ancient world, the courthouses were at the city gates. And so here's what you have. Jesus arriving a lot of years ago, symbolizing peace and the spiritual unworthiness of the city's citizens. He dies, executed for sins he didn't commit. And we say, we are unworthy. But through his actions, worthiness is ascribed to the name of each Christian believer. And the day is coming when Jesus will again come down the Mount of Olives, this time riding a horse, symbolizing victory over death and sin and the spiritual worthiness of all who follow him. And by the way, a psalm you've probably looked at at some point in the past. You go, what's that about? So the psalms are written a thousand years before Jesus dies. And he, before Jesus comes and he dies and he rises again. They're written... Four to five hundred years before Zechariah speaks about all this. The psalmist says, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Why? So that the king of glory can come in. This is not just about Palm Sunday. This is about what's yet to come. Who is the king of, the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. This is when he's coming on, his, on the war horse saying, I have victory over sin and death. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up you, your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is, who is, this, who is this guy that's coming, this king of glory? The Lord almighty, the king of glory. Which, the blue band-aid bit, right? When are we getting to that? One point I said of today's message. All of that was just for one major point. What the blue band-aids do, 
They point out a sore thumb or a sore finger, and they point out, hey, it's going to be noticeable. And I simply wonder, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are relying on his work on the cross to move you from unworthiness to worthiness, if you're expecting your unworthiness to be replaced by Jesus' worthiness, if you are expecting death, pardon me, if you're expecting victory over death and sin and that death and sin are going to be wiped out, if you're planning to call on Jesus' name at the eastern gate of mercy, what a great name. If you're expecting to call on Jesus' name at the eastern gate of mercy at the last great judgment, if you carry his name with an intent to carry it throughout all of eternity, here's the big point. Can people see you and recognize you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Not like a sore thumb, but as a healing bandage for our world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way in which Scripture so <laughs> it just ties together time after time. And you look at what somebody wrote 3,000 years ago versus what they wrote 2,500 years ago versus how history played itself out. And it all ties together, Lord. And we see the remarkable story of, of history being played out and occurring exactly as your word tells us, as the Bible tells us. It is so, Lord, um, affirming for the position that Christians take when, it said, when we say that we are expecting that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and that he has victory in hand, he has salvation in hand, he has worthiness in place. I thank you, Lord, that for many of us here today, in the auditoriums, online, wherever, Lord, for many of us, we know that. And we, we, we are experiencing that and we're, we're striving with every fiber of our being to be that bandage to the world in a world that is, Lord, so lost and so chaotic and so troublesome. We pray, Lord, Lord that we would live our lives in ways, God, that can be noticed, not for our sake, but for the sake of your name. That we would move our journeys through hills and valleys and ups and downs um, in ways that honor you. And God, I pray that whether somebody in either auditorium, somebody is watching online right now, or maybe in months from now, long removed from Palm Sunday, is in a place where they'd say, I'm not ready for that second coming. I'm not ready. I'm still unworthy, Lord. I pray that you would hear the cry of their heart right now. You calling them into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. May personal peace, may the Jesus of Palm Sunday riding on a donkey come into our lives. May the unworthiness then, Lord, be replaced by Jesus living within us as a victorious king with victory over death and sin. And it's in his name that we pray.